thank you for listening to this social action briefing. We are recording on Wednesday night, October 26th. I am Craig Milch. I am joined by Professor Professor Jessica Mitchell. Hello, Jess. Hey, Craig. And Martina Stevenson. Hello, Tina. Muted, Tina. I'm muted. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, Craig. Hi, Jessica. <laughs> Leaving that in. Sorry. It's happening. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to start off uh, with a deep dive, and I'm justifying it to myself and everybody else by saying it meshes a bunch of things that we've, you know, are recurring here. So it's about student debt relief, which we've obviously talked about on many different occasions. And it's going to go into the uh, challenges that have made it to the Supreme Court um, with two kind of different perspectives um, by people that provide uh, uh, sourcing for a lot of our content on this. So there's uh, Mark Joseph Stern, who writes uh, for Slate, and uh, Ian Milheiser, who uh, writes for Vox. So um, what uh, Stern talked about was the early, most aggressive uh, challenge to student debt relief by, brought by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL, a dark money conservative group that's most notorious for trying to purge hundreds of thousands of people from their voter rolls in 2020, and more recently pushed a successful lawsuit to outlaw ballot drop boxes in Wisconsin. So how great are they, huh? Um, they they got their challenge uh, to the Supreme Court on the 14th of this month. And uh, I think we mentioned it. I don't remember if we mentioned on the podcast or after or whatever, but um, the day after we recorded that last week's podcast, it was denied on the shadow docket uh, by Amy Coney Barrett, who I guess handles the cases that uh, come from that area, from Wisconsin. Um, this group opposes voting rights, unions, COVID restrictions, Medicaid expansion. Uh, it exploits the courts to combat pretty much every democratically enacted progressive policy. And uh, so, you know, it kind of, kind of speaks to, you know, one of the particular uh, insidious forces in our democracy, which is like the right-wing uh, interest group um, so, you know, with respect to this particular challenge, um, it was dismissed on stand or denied on standing. The Supreme Court has consistently held that under the Constitution, a plaintiff lacks standing unless they can identify a, quote, concrete and particularized injury and show how a ruling in their favor would redress that injury. Will attempted to surmount that by bringing the suit on behalf of the Brown County Taxpayers Association, um, which is which purports to represent Wisconsin taxpayers um, and says that because of the debt relief program, quote, its members will be forced to pay higher taxes and live in an America that is less prosperous, more fiscally irresponsible and burdened by a higher federal debt. Um, according to Will, the association members are so upset about this threat, they've suffered a constitutional injury, giving them standing to sue. Supreme Court precedent, which reaches back at least a century, prohibits individual citizens from suing 
to halt some federal expenditure as Justice Alito himself, the architect of all that is horrible in Supreme Court decisions, uh, he said in 2007, quote, it is a complete fiction to argue that an unconstitutional federal expenditure causes an individual federal taxpayer any measurable economic harm. Uh, he said, if every tax, every federal taxpayer could sue to challenge any government expenditure, the federal courts would cease to function as courts of law and would be cast in the role of general complaint bureaus. Hmm. There, um, and not, not, uh, you know, not that I don't think that, you know, if they want a particular outcome in a case, they would just ignore, you know, the Alito himself would just ignore all that. Um, if he really wanted to, but it is what he said. And uh, standing requirements have only tightened since then. There has been one exception to these types of cases. Um, and if they were, you know, if, if they were to grant, you know, will standing in this case, uh, it would open the floodgates to endless taxpayer lawsuits challenging federal spending on stuff like the military, veteran services, healthcare, education, transportation, housing, the environment, really every federal action. Um, and one exception that that, uh, that Will is relying on is called Flast versus Cohen, which was a lawsuit over the establishment cause of violation of the separation of church and state. The Supreme Court um, has strictly limited taxpayer standing to federal expenditures that violate the establishment cause. Uh, expressly rejecting even modest expansions of the doctrine. So, you know, they, it's really has to directly be that. And then even in those cases where it's very, you know, about uh, separation of church and state, uh, conservative justices like uh, Scalia, who is probably looking up on all of us as we speak, um, and Clarence Thomas have demanded Flast's reversal insisting that it is unprincipled, unworkable, and unconstitutional. Um, the court has refused to apply it in case after case and warn lower courts not to expand it at all. Um, Republicans could promise to reimpose all student debt canceled by Biden as soon as they retake the White House, but for some reason they are not making that argument. And uh, that's kind of in, you know instructive when thinking about the you know, right-wing uh, ideological movement um, you know, they, their strategy is more to pass off unpopular political decisions to the courts that they've captured so they don't face political backlash because they know everything they want to do is unpopular. They just don't care because they aren't. They're pretty anti-democratic. Um, so that's one look at it. It's basically, you know, Stern was, at least when he wrote that, was of the opinion that no one's going to have standing to challenge. Um, and uh, Milheiser is decidedly more worried. Um, on the 21st of this month, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, which is, I think, 10 out of 11 uh, Republican appointees, it's a very right-wing uh, circuit court, it placed a temporary injunction on uh, debt cancellation in Nebraska versus Biden. Uh, it was brought by five Republican state attorneys general and one Republican state governor. And a, so this, uh, this payment pause as, as you know, to kind of um, 
you know, review what we've talked about before. Uh, the payment pause and cancellation were enacted under the authority of the HEROES Act, which was passed after 9-11, which gave the Secretary of Education broad authority to waive or modify many student loan obligations, uh, quote, as the Secretary deems necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. Of course, the relevant national emergency in this case is the COVID-19 pandemic and the global economic disruption that emerged from the pandemic. Now, the HEROES Act at the time passed by unanimous consent in the Senate. So, you know, they didn't even have to vote. They just said, did everybody agree? And then nobody objected. It, went, it passed 421 to one in the House. And it was signed by George W. Bush, who is obviously a Republican. Although I'm sure the MAGA folks would call him a rhino at this point and have. I think um, they have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, that's long, uh, that toothpaste has long been out of the tube. Um, but, you know, Milheiser points out that with the HEROES Act, Congress did a few specific things. It determined that the president alone shall have the unilateral authority to determine when a national emergency exists that is sufficiently grave to activate the secretary's loan cancellation authority. It established that once that authority is activated, the law states that loans may be waived or modified, quote, as the secretary deems necessary. Congress chose to vest discretion over who should receive student loan relief and very specific individuals in the executive branch. And it specifically did not give this authority to the judiciary. Um, it was also very clear that the secretary's authority extends beyond uh, the most acute phase of a particular national emergency. The law states that the secretary may act, quote, in connection with an emergency rather than using narrower language that might have constrained their authority. Like if Congress had, you know, specifically placed temporal or similar restrictions on when the secretary may act. Um, and it also states that one purpose of the secretary's loan cancellation authority is to ensure that student borrowers impacted by a national emergency, quote, are not placed in a worse position financially in relation to that financial assistance because of their status as affected individuals. And finally, uh, it, it shows that Congress must have known that in giving uh, broad discretion to a presidential appointee, this appointee could wield that authority in ways that, oppose, that the opposing uh, party disagrees with, or that the president's opponents view as excessively political. But Congress chose to accept that risk, believing it was better to ensure that people who deserve loan relief receive that relief. So, you know, basically this is sort of establishing the principles of the legal argument for why, you know, the whole debt relief plan is legal. Um, but of course, that doesn't make it safe. Uh, it could, and this is, this is Milizer's biggest fear, is that it could be struck down under the major questions doctrine, which he described as, quote, an ill-defined legal doctrine mentioned nowhere in either the Constitution or in any federal statute, and that appears to have been entirely fabricated by members of the judiciary. It's almost very, very similar to the filibuster, which was sort of uh, unintentionally fabricated by Aaron Burr. Uh, in that 2014 case, Utility Air Regulation Group versus EPA, 
SCOTUS said that uh, courts may invalidate a federal agency's actions if they determine that this action touches upon a matter of, quote, vast economic and political significance. He writes, technically, the major questions doctrine permits Congress to empower agencies to decide questions of great significance if Congress uses, uses sufficiently precise language. But the court has never said just how precise that language must be. And the whole point of statutes like the HEROES Act is to give agencies discretion to act when unexpected events occur. A requirement that Congress must define an agency's powers with extraordinary precision defeats that purpose. The Supreme Court also has not explained what constitutes a matter of vast economic and political significance. And it kind of, it kind of makes it feel a lot like how Shelby uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act by, you know, just making the requirements, you know, uh, so like in establishing the requirements in such a way that, um, you know, it, it guts the particular law. Um, in uh, West Virginia versus EPA from, I believe, this year that we've talked about before, uh, Supreme Court used major questions to rule the clear, uh, the clean power plan was unconstitutional. And again, this was a plan that never went into effect. And these aims were actually met 11 years earlier than its targets, purely through market forces, had to do with like the types of uh, efficient coal plants or whatever. Basically, the court has shown that it will use major questions to enforce its political preferences on an arbitrary basis, as they've also done with vaccination evictions and other subjects, democracy. Um, standing does remain an issue. And in Nebraska versus Biden, the district court judge ruled the plaintiffs don't have standing. Um, but like I mentioned, with respect to standing, Miller is not as confident as Stern. He says that a plaintiff has to show the smallest injury to overcome the standing requirement. Like if a bank or an investor can show that they will lose a single penny because of the loan forgiveness program, for example, that would be enough. So the likelihood that Republicans and other opponents of loan forgiveness program will eventually find some plaintiff who is invested in some obscure financial instrument whose value drops when student loans are forgiven remains fairly high, in Millheiser's uh, opinion. And once they find this unusual uh, plaintiff and convince them to sue, that will be enough. Yeah, so according to Millheiser, the Eighth Circuit, um, which does have 10 out of 11 Republican appointees, could still strike down debt forgiveness on major questions grounds. And if that happens, the Biden administration will seek relief from the Supreme Court, who can then sit on the case for months, leaving perhaps, uh, as Jess would hope, and you know, men would benefit many to note you know, for the payments to remain paused and interest not to accrue. Although if that if it just did, if it just started up again with interest, that would be very bad. But anyway, it could sit on the case. It could put it off for months, leaving the court's order blocking in place. If lower court does block it, there's a chance that the program never takes effect, um, which would suck. I so where where are we falling never, on the spectrum? <laughs> it would never. It would suck if like the forgiveness never happened. But I would be so grateful if I got like another six months to a year with no interest because. It would be really life-changing for those of us that have a significant amount of debt as, you know, obviously a 10 or $20,000 relief would be really significant to the people who only have that much debt left. 
um, or a little bit more, but you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's like, so in the way of Republicans, like their base is a minority of like very wealthy, very radical, you know, conservatives who don't give a fuck about anybody but themselves. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's their base. So anything they can do to, like diff like get get people off of their back and not have it be their responsibility throwing things to the court is like the way that they have to do it because they don't have like a real base of voters um and this could easily like piss you know people off obviously if it became their responsibility for why this didn't happen so blaming it on the court is perfect yeah and i mean even and the motivation to want to kill it is like like a combination of drain pool politics where it's like you know i don't want those people to get any type of benefits and sort of the the like the pba the police unions or like the gun control or the you know the gun lobby is that they just like don't want anything in a progressive direction because they're afraid that more will happen because like honestly like even the you know the rich, you know the the Peter Teals and the guy and whoever owns Uline and and the the Vosses and whatever like the, like this this student debt cancellation isn't like what does it even hurt? How does it hurt them at all? Their bottom line, like it's just their feelings or their ideology. I think like, you know, it really is just their ideology because remembering that like the debt that they are forgiving is debt that is held by the federal government. So the they will only forgive direct loans and direct student loans is money not given to us by Bank of America or Chase or HSBC. It's money that is given to us to go to school from the federal government. So all they're doing is logging into a computer and deleting like some zeros off of accounts. Like they're not writing a check to a bank that lent us money to forgive us the debt. So all that's happening is they're just not going to be paid back, but they're not paid back all the freaking time. Like businesses don't pay back their loans. Like the PPP loans were never paid back. Like they were re reverted into grants so that people didn't have to pay them back. So fundamentally, like this is all about people's ideology and like determining like what is, you know, what is worth forgiveness and what isn't worth forgiveness. And like, I, you know, I don't care that the PPP loans were forgiven. I care that the PPP loans given out to like mega corporations were forgiven, but that's like a whole other tangent that we could go down. You know, I don't care that the PPP loans were forgiven. What I care about is that education isn't looked at in the same way. Like, why is it so vitally important that if you want a degree, you have to pay for it. But if you want to open up a business, then like the government is just going to like fund your way. Like we need businesses. I'm not discrediting that in any way. Like we need people to open businesses. We need, you know, that, that sort of like commerce in our economy, but like, we also need people to go to college. Like we need doctors, we need, you know, nurses and lawyers and marine biologists and, and all these different people to go get degrees and do this work and devalue valuing that 
is part of like the pathological problem that's going on in the United States right now, because then we get into the whole conversation of like, what degree is worth it? Like they're all worth it. Like we need people to be doing all of these jobs. And by- They're worth existing, but some of them, you know, when they get so expensive cost-wise. No, yeah, but like, but but the thing is, is that like we we need, what I'm saying, like we don't need the super expensive schools. Like, you know, and I'm glad that the federal government, you know, under Obama and now again under Biden are like going after- these for-profit corporations that are trying to sell themselves as universities when they're not yeah. they're in it to make a buck. I'm not defending that, but I'm defending the idea that like, we need people to go to college and like major in marine biology. Like we need people to go to college and major in English and Spanish and like all in nursing and, and social work and, and all these degrees that are so often discredited by the right as like, nuisance degrees when like really all of these things are important and like they all help in the functioning of society and I don't understand like why the right is so determined to like just discredit education altogether um no hypothesis what <laughs> I have a hypothesis on that. Well, yes, because it very much helps them to have an uneducated and illiterate workforce because people are more, the less education you have, the more likely you are to vote Republican, which is a problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that does not mean that you are definitely going to, and it also doesn't mean that people yeah. with PhDs are going to vote for a Democrat, but you're just significantly more likely the less education you have to start trending Republican you know, and the lack of critical thinking skills that exist in society and the lack of ability to understand, you know, news headlines and like to understand, you know, like what is going on in society obviously is a huge part of not being educated. But that's like, th this is like a problem. Like, not everyone is going to open a business. If we all went out and opened businesses, again, society would stop functioning because we need all of these professions, but like, and not everyone's going to go to college and that's fine too. Not everybody, not all the student loan debt is even college debt. There's trade school debt. And like. Oh yes. I, yeah. There is trade school debt, which I don't understand. Um, I feel like the trade school skills, it should be incorporated in high schools, but that's a whole different conversation. It should be. And sometimes it is like there are BOCES programs that exist in New York state where people can go for like cosmetology and, and, you know, like electric electrician school and automobile tech and stuff like that. But like, not everybody knows they want to do that. Like I know people who actually went to BOCES after high school because they figured out like they wanted to be a cosmetologist after high school. They want, you know, like that, they didn't figure it out in high school. So like, it is definitely important that that be available for like people beyond high school age too, but yeah, they should totally be incorporated in every high school throughout America. Like I went to high school with somebody who was going to finish BOCES at the same time as high school and be an LPN. Mm -hmm. And she planned on, I don't, I didn't stay in touch with her, so I don't know if it actually happened or not, but she planned on going into the LPN to RN program, like right after high school, but she was also going to be able to work full-time as an LPN when she graduated, yeah. which is fantastic. Like do you remember yeah. that commercial that was like high school, TV, VCR repair, computer programming, animal care <laughs> specialist, electrician, like, and like listed off 
I don't even remember what it was okay. for. Can we talk about this for a second? It's VCR. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was a commercial that came on all the time. I don't know if it was like a video series Recently? or a school. Huh? Recently? No, no, like in the 90s. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, seriously, who the hell even have? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It was on so much. It was like that and like some of those uh, like music compilation CDs. Like I still can like, like when the song comes on, I'll like go to the next, I'll like sing it and sing the next song from that commercial because it's just like ingrained in my brain from seeing it so many times in the 90s oh that's okay i was with my friend the other day at her mother's house and her mother is 81 and there's vhs tapes all over her house and i find it so amusing (laughs) (laughs) i just saw on uh, on tiktok there was a mom that her daughter was trying to get her to throw out all of her cds and she's like i threw out my vinyl and that came back i'm not going through that again she had like so many CDs that she was refusing to throw out. That's funny. I still have CDs. Um, I keep them here for souvenirs. I, I don't listen to them, but they're here. Nostalgia. It's I like think, uh, little art pieces. I have like a couple of classic DVDs. Like I kept, um, oh my God, what the hell is the name of it? If These Walls Could Talk because it's not available anywhere else. Um and I kept my Dr. Quinn DVDs because it was the first DVD I ever owned. Um, and I kept like Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much it. <laughs> wow. Well, the, uh, the prediction abilities from time travel would be useful uh, to have when it comes to our next topic, which we mentioned last week go a little bit deeper on everyone's favorite topic the debt ceiling um the dumb thing that shouldn't exist uh so last week um a reporter asked president biden if he would support a repeal of the debt ceiling and he said a permanent repeal of the debt ceiling just say we don't have a debt limit he he asked with a laugh as if the notion were fantastical no That'd be irresponsible. There are two, two pieces in New York Magazine, one from Jonathan Shake, the other from Eric Levitz. Um, so repealing the debt ceiling or raising it to a level at which it is practically repealed, as we discussed, is the responsible course of action. Leaving it in place uh, is clearly an invitation for political chaos and creates the risk of a global economic meltdown absolutely no benefit whatsoever. Um, So to recap how this all works, Congress decides how much to tax and how much to spend. And then uh, the Treasury uh, either spends the money or um, issues uh, debt by bonds to raise the money. Um, And uh, lifting the debt ceiling, um, which is so it's the, the, you know, the, the budget is decided and voted on. The spending, the taxes, the debt, it's all decided by Congress. And then it, it, so it gets bigger over time because that's what stuff involving money does. And the debt ceiling has to be lifted by an act of Congress. Um, and it prevents the government 
from having to default on either its debt, you know, it can't pay. If they, if they don't raise the limit, you have to choose. You can default on uh, debt, you know, not pay your bondholders, or you cannot pay for things like, you know, pay like the salaries of U.S. service members, uh, Social Security benefits for the recipients, you know, Medicaid benefits for enrollees and other, you know, giving benefits to other beneficiaries of federal spending. Uh, Denmark is the only other country with a debt ceiling. And it uh, sort of, again, back to uh, another, you know, the another uh, shitty feature of our democracy that shouldn't exist. The, like the filibuster, it went decades and decades not really being an issue until uh, 19, the 1990s when Newt Gingrich sort of flirted with the idea of holding the debt ceiling for ransom and decided the less extreme but equally dumb and also damaging means of uh, going with the government shutdown instead. Then the Tea Party um, extorted Obama into spending cuts in 2011 while causing Standard & Poor's to downgrade the US, U.S.'s credit rating, which, I mean, even the rich backers of Republicans couldn't have liked. Um, two years later, the GOP used the debt ceiling to try to force Obamacare repeal, but it lost the game of chicken on that. There's no compromising. They gave up. Um, and Eric Levitz's recommendation here um, is to inform the voters that the GOP's plan for lowering inflation is to cut America's most popular government programs or else you engineer a global depression and to use reconciliation to raise the debt ceiling high enough so that is effectively abolished. You can do that, like you said, through reconciliation. So, you know, majority in the House, 50 votes with the vice president tie-breaking in the Senate, don't need Republicans to help you. We can do it. And, you know, there's also the Treasury could mint a trillion-dollar coin or, or a multi-trillion-dollar coin that we've talked about as well. Um, but, yeah, it's just being... Um, they, you know, Republicans have stated this is what they plan to do. They plan to hold the economy hostage to get spending cuts. And I went door knocking in the area for Jackie Gordon last weekend. And there's a script about, you know, Jackie Gordon's, uh, you know, credentials and her positions on things. But, you know, what I'm talking about, what, you know, I've, I brought that up, I, you know, to the, you know, it's not, not in the script, but. You know, I think it's an effective message that kind of ties Republican extremism in with, you know, their shitty uh, fiscal policy that nobody, you know, fiscal platform that nobody would agree with. You know, they're being extremists, threatening to tank the economy. And why? To cut Medicare and Social Security. Like, it's pretty, you know, that plus abortion, I feel like, pretty universal, no matter who is on the ticket in a particular race, you know, when it's Democrats and Republicans. So we shall see with that. Um, and, you know, something that's a constant well of uh, opportunity to discredit Republicans, although people seem to care less and less about it, but we still track it here on the podcast is uh, Republican hypocrisy. This week's edition uh, on Tuesday, Elise Stefanik, the number three House Republican, and according to Tim Miller, who wrote a book about this, the most craven, number one most craven uh, 
House Republican, you know, basically going along with extremism while knowing knowing better. Um, yeah, I think it's also really important to add that this crazy lady is from New York. Yes, um, yes. That is like a vital piece of information for people oh, wow. to presume to think that all New York is like so liberal slash progressive. Yeah, she is like on equal footing with uh, the Republican candidate for governor in New York, Lee Zelda, who was a congressman. Um, so she announced $12.9 million for five hospitals within her district in the form of rural development grants from the Department of Agriculture, quote from the press release. This significant investment will help bolster rural hospitals in upstate New York and the North Country after lost revenues due to the coronavirus pandemic help address the physician's shortage and ensure these hospitals can continue to meet our community's health care needs. Now, if you are a listener to the podcast or know anything about Republicans, you know what's coming next. She voted against the American Rescue Plan that this uh, funding came from and called it a far left wish list. Um, this particular article in MSNBC mentions some other folks that some we've talked about before. I'm not sure, but another New Yorker, Nicole uh, Maliotakis, has gone as far as to tout the ARP investments as one of her, quote, achievements, and that she prides herself on, quote, bringing federal funding to the district and back into the pockets of taxpayers, with, of course, without noting that she voted against the bill. So, yeah, not all New York politicians are liberal. That is not all New Yorkers to be sure. are definitely not. not. New Yorkers, especially around this particular district that I reside in and that you just grew up in. It is quite unfortunate. Um, I will also add that the congressional districts that I lived in when I was growing up there for a time was vastly different from the one that is there now and was actually represented by a Democrat for most of the time I lived there. Did it get redistricted into being more conservative? Yeah. So after the 2010 census, uh, when redistricting happened, I the districts were previously from 2000 to 2010, the first congressional district looked roughly the same. And then the second and third congressional districts ran north south instead of east west. So the district that I was in, congressional district two, um, started about 10 blocks from where my mom lives and went north, south and included a little bit of Smithtown, most of Islip, uh, Babylon, Huntington and had to go into Nassau County because of the way the population works. And the part of Nassau County that was in this district was Plainview, which is a predominantly at the time was a heavily Jewish area that was predominantly democratic. so the district was actually represented until 2000, I think, by a Republican. But at that point, it was changing. Um, and then in 2000, Steve Israel was elected to that district. He lived in Huntington. And after the 2010 census, uh, 
the second became the third and started in Queens and ended in Smithtown and included Huntington where he lived. Uh, at which point Peter King's district was the one that represented my mother's house. Um, and this was all around the time that I actually moved to Oyster Bay. So I moved from Steve Israel's district to Steve Israel's district. It's the uh, bookstore entrepreneur. Has it opened yet? It must have by now, right? Oh yeah, it was open. It was open in the spring semester. I want to say it opened like last January. I have also, in addition to the many hundreds of dollars that I have spent recently at other local bookstores, spent some money there too. <laughs> Having a bookstore across the street for me is more dangerous than the Carvel coffee shop or really anything else. Yeah, you can rack it up in there. Rack up the charges. It's not good. It's really, <laughs> it's quite dangerous. It's me. good business for them. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, not good and dangerous, let's move it over to... Uh, Tina's TBD, I see the preview of what we're going to be talking about, so I feel like it's a decent segue. Yeah, it's still talking about redistricting, um, but this is more so uh, in the southern states where the U.S. Supreme Court is considering redistricting cases that likely will determine whether voting is fair for years to come. And this is more linked to their question of asking who is Black um, who is considered black? Um, I thought this was a yeah very interesting article where it, it says how black is black enough for redistricting. That was the title of it. Uh, yeah. um, this stuff is crazy. I saw yeah I saw this come across. Yeah. Um, so it goes into talking about where in the state of Alabama the court will decide whether the state is discriminating by having one of seven congressional districts be majority black, where the population is more than 25% black. Um, and in, in a similar case in Louisiana, asks whether the state is discriminating by creating just one majority black district out of six, though the state's population is about 33% black. And the Republicans argue that creating a second majority black congressional district would not be right because the map wouldn't be race neutral, therefore violating redistricting, um, will be violating redistricting guidelines. Um, in response to that, Alabama voting rights advocates argue that to be fair, race is important, is an important factor and a good reason to create a district that would be, that would give black voters a fighting chance to be represented by someone most likely you know, that reflect their governing and policy perspectives. Um, then they, uh, the lower courts kind of came in with their response where they stated um, that considering that Alabama in redistricting cases ruled that approved maps weaken black voting opportunities, which is a violation of section two of the Voting Rights Acts because they give black voters less opportunity than other members of the electoral electorate um, to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. So uh, it went on to talking about where courts are using the data 
to see how many data basically from the census to see how many people checked the boxes identifying as black or black and other ethnic groups or racial groups, other racial groups. Some Republicans don't want a large number of people considered as black. So fewer people are considered black for the purpose of redistricting. Um, so before Alabama's case went to the Supreme Court, GOP officials decided it's best to step away from the argument of how black is black argument, whereas Louisiana Secretary of State Kyle Ardern, um, Ardoin, that a border definition of black is a mistake and argues people who considered themselves both black and white should be included in the category but not those who identify as both Black, Hispanic, or Latino, or otherwise multiracial. Um, this is, least to say, this is just so stupid. I'm sorry, this is, I don't even know where to go with this. And there's a lot of things in life that are stupid. <laughs> just call it out as it is. Yeah, like what? The hell? Why? Why? So in this in this country where it's so multiracial at this point, why would you even use a stupid checkbox for race at this point? Just vote for whoever you want, support whoever you want. Who cares of whether you're black or white? Like at this point, it's just it. it this this makes me so upset. This is so stupid. Well, I mean, you know, the way that when districts are drawn, that diminishes, you know, black people's power, you know, you got to take account to it to be able to fix it. But what they're trying to do is make less people count as black so that there's less political power to give to black people. It's, it's like craven, heinous and stupid, which is right. like too craven, heinous and stupid even for Alabama. But Louisiana was like, hold my, well, I don't know what beer, but like, what are they drinking? I don't know. Hold my <laughs> bourbon. Yeah, here we go. It's, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah. I'm just going to leave it as that. Um, and, and I, and I get the gist of it in the sense where behind all of it is just that you're, focusing on who's so-called black so you can redistrict in a sense where you can continue to discriminate and have power that that's yeah. what all this boils down to like so it's like oh there aren't really that many black people they exactly. should only have one district exactly yeah. and then where most of them they redistrict and then put all the black people in one district that's what they tend to do and just count them out so it's like let's call it what it is this is what you're trying to do stop sugarcoating the situation of oh you know we want to represent them and all this crap just listen you just want to keep your power and keep you know black folks out and that's what it is let's call it what it is um so and continuation of this well this is more so uh, you know more discrimination um the next article talks about slavery being on a ballot where five states will soon decide whether to close loopholes that led to um 
proliferation of a different form of slavery, force, which forced labor by people convict, convicted of certain crimes. So the effort is part of basically a national push to amend the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that banned enslavement or involuntary servitude, except as a form of criminal punishment. So this exception permits the exploitation of labor by convicted felons. Um, so it started off where nearly 20 states have, const have constitutions. Um, basically the language in the constitution permitted slavery and involuntary servitude as criminal punishments. In 2018, Colorado was the first to remove the language from its founding frameworks by ballot measure, followed by Nebraska and Utah two years later. So this coming November now, voters in Alabama, Louisiana, Oregon, um, Tennessee, and Vermont will be faced with the decision concerning uh, whether or not, you know, they're gonna change the language um, to basically uh, that create the loophole to maintain slavery. Tennessee will distinguish between slavery and involuntary servitude are forever prohibited, um, which they went on to saying that nothing in this section shall prohibit an inmate from working when the inmate has been thoroughly convicted of a crime. Those who are incarcerated cannot be forced to work without pay, but also not create a situation where they won't be able to work at all. Um, now in Alabama, they're asking voters to delete all racist language from its constitution and to remove and replace a section on convict labor that's similar to what Tennessee has had in its um, constitution. Vermont proposed change would replace the current exception clause with language saying slavery and involuntary servitude are forever prohibited in this state. Oregon's change repeals its exception clause while adding the language allowing a court or probation or parole agency to order alternatives to incarceration as part of sentencing. And then lastly, Louisiana, um, is the only state that draws an organized opposition over concerns that the replacement language may make matters worse. My thing is just make this plain and simple language where it just does not allow slavery. That's it. Yeah, getting not allowing slavery is generally uh, the right thing to do. Yeah. I say this like at least once a week to somebody and I guess, Martina, it's your week. You're just asking for a little too much. Oh, I, 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 I'm, <laughs> listen, I'm just imagining, <laughs> you I, know? I say it in, in all due fun that like you are literally asking for exactly what should happen, but the people you are asking it to think it's like too much. Yeah. Oh no. Who knows what could happen if we ban slavery? Oh no. Unintended consequences of banning slavery. Seriously. <laughs> um, yeah. 
it's it's just so crazy how to me it's like the constitution is written where it's like oh yes we're gonna get rid of this but then part b c here and i'm just making this up says you can still do this in other parts you know it's still legal here so it's like you took 10 steps forward to take 20 back so which one is it you know so that that's how i often view it so um in other news of you know speaking of um i guess inmates um i came across the story of Brittany griner which has been in the news since september uh february earlier this year um where a russian she's you know she's currently in a russian um prison where the russian court recently denied her appeal to reduce um nine her nine-year prison sentence if those of you who don't know Brittany griner she is uh, eight-time WNBA All-Star. She was first arrested in February when customs agents at a Moscow airport found a vape cartridge containing um, hashish oil, which is cannabis oil, um, in her luggage. So Brittany pleaded guilty in effort to secure leniency. Um, and then, you know, she and her lawyers immediately appealed the decision, though legal experts reported that she will never be likely to secure her freedom. Griner's most promising pathway out of foreign custody um, involves a prisoner exchange between the White House and Kremlin, though the U.S. has reportedly offered to swap notorious Russian arms lead dealer Victor Bout for the return of Griner and fellow American Paul Willen. American government officials have maintained that they have yet to receive a serious counter offer out of Moscow. Um, in a statement released from the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, the White House is committed to continue making every effort to bring home Brittany as well as to support and advocate for the other Americans detained in Russia, including fellow wrongful detainee Paul Willen. Yeah, gotta think that if it was LeBron James in prison in Russia rather than Brittany Griner, he'd be out by now. You think so? I I, I don't necessarily think believe that. Yeah, because I feel like um, people are saying that she's being used as a political pawn. So to me, whether it was LeBron James or somebody else, if that's their motive, then it wouldn't matter who it is. Um, so I, yeah, I just, I feel bad for her because it's like you're spending, why like not just let her come home and serve? This is a harsh sentence regardless. Like whether it's here in the US or back, you know, in Russia, I think it's a harsh sentence. Um, I understand the laws are different there, but nine years just because you're carrying cannabis oil in your luggage. And from what I understand, she used some of it for, um, you know, medical reasons for pain, I believe. So where is their, I, I don't know, human judgment in that sense, where it's like, oh, this person needed this um to give such a harsh sentence or just send her 
back home. Let her, you know, figure out the legal, um, you know, I guess aspect of it here, what to do with her at this point. Um, and other news, uh, this, uh, it's not even good, good news. Um, we had a recent shooting, another shooting. I just get sick and tired of talking about the same thing over and over and with shootings in this country. Um, there was an attack at the Central Visual and Performing Arts High School in St. Louis, Missouri, um, which left, this happened Monday, which left seven injured with others reporting narrow escapes. Uh, the two victims were identified as student Alexandria Bell, who was 15, who was 15, and Jean Kokska, a 61-year-old physical education teacher. There were seven injured, three girls and four boys, all had non-life-threatened injuries, according to the news report. Um, the gunman has identified as a 19-year-old former student. Police said he was armed with an AR-15 style rifle and was carrying hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Um, police are still investigating potential motives where he basically, um, the gunman had written a, a handwritten note left at the scene by the gunman. Um, well, he left a handwritten um, note, attempted to explain his reasoning for the shooting and reference feelings of unhappiness. I just don't know how many more of these stories that we have to keep hearing about and reading about, sick and tired of it. Um, and then going on with Texas now, um, with more relating to shootings, over a year ago, Governor Greg Abbott signed a law making it legal for anyone in Texas over the age of 21 to openly carry a gun in public without a permit or a license. Since then, the number of mass shootings has risen to 62.5%. Go figure. Don't know what they were thinking. Um, from June 13, 2020 to June 13, 2021, when Abbott signed the permitless carry law, Texas had 40 mass shootings in that same time period from 2022 the number of mass shootings rose to 65. Um, I think it's like 65%. The numbers were compiled no, 65 shootings. 65 shootings? Okay. Yeah. Um, the numbers were compiled using the databases from the Stanford University Data Project, the mass shooting tracker, Vox Gun Violence, Archives, Mother Jones, The Washington Post, the FBI, and con the Congressional Research Service. All incidents met at least two definitions of mass shooting. Taking the number of victims into account in the one-year period before the bill was signed, 187 people were killed or injured in the mass shootings in Texas. In the one year period after that, 375 people were killed or injured, a 100% increase. Um, even if the 40 people are injured uh, you know, in Robb Elementary School massacre are excluded, 
the increase is 90, 79%, which is enormous jump in, um, in shootings. Um, Who would have thought making it easier to carry guns leads to more shootings? Who would have thought? I know people who just don't have common sense, right? Yeah. Seriously. Um, so it says when the bill was signed, Texas Democrats predicted, oh, wow, predicted that the law would likely increase gun violence. Yeah, I think. Um, whereas U.S. Representative um, Veronica Escobar, who is a Democrat in El Paso, Texas, stated that despite overwhelming support for common sense gun violence prevention legislation like universal background checks, Texas Republicans are more interested in groveling for the gun lobby's attention than they are in preventing gun violence and honoring victims and survivors in El Paso and across Texas. Yeah, um, she's 100% right about that. Yeah. According to Everytown Research and Policy, uh, stated that um, have states have states that have weakened or eliminated law enforcement authority to deny permits to people who pose a danger have experienced an 11% increase in handgun homicide rates and a 13 to 15% increase in violent crime rates. Um, states have been steadily loose, loosening their gun control laws under pressure from conservatives who feel that a Democratic president is more likely to start confiscate, conf, confiscating weapons despite no evidence to support the assertion. Uh, studies across the board, those states experience more violence than those who do not, with Texas being among the deadliest. Gun legislation works. Seriously. It, it's like they're playing playing games with people's lives just to get to remain in power and do the foolishness that they, they're continuing to do. I, I just I just don't and get it. All of these politicians that make sure that gun legislation doesn't get passed, all when they go out in public, you know, out from behind the gates of their mansions or whatever. You know, if they have a rally like Ron DeSantis, you, there's no guns allowed there. You can't open carry there. Mm-hmm. But for every, it's again, it's you can't, you know, you can't control me, and I can control you. I can control you. Yeah, that's all it's it's about. And 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 you know, I often wonder like if these shootings or whatever horrible situation was happening to their to them or their own family members how would they react but it just sounds like they're so inhumane like they just don't even care and, and that's that's what it boils down to i don't even think they even care about their own family members at this point i mean if if a politician or right-wing activists uh, family member was shot in like a grocery store or a mall, they would just double down on, uh, you know, the whole law and order, like make, you know, make things more, like make prison sentences longer or their response would just, you know, be reactionary and 
likely harm marginalized communities. That's that's how they would react. Yeah. And not real, like, I guess. Not evidence-based, you know, gun. Life-changing, yes. (laughs) Evidence-based, life-changing, you know, to, for the better of all people, you know. It's just like, yeah, for the good of all people, they just wouldn't, they're not interested. Completely uninterested. Sadly. But that's what I have. We we thank all of our listeners for being interested and listening. Um, And uh, thank you, as always, to uh, Iridian Falcone, who uh, inspired the podcast and uh, gave us our logo, and to the Grammy Award-winning Vinnie Alfano of Anonymous Hair Salon and Soho for our theme song. We'll see you next time. Thank you.